Colossians chapter 1. You know, the Bible uses a uh, number of literary devices to help people like you and me to understand who God is and what he's all about and what it is that he requires of us. One of these devices that is often used is called a paradox. A paradox. Let me define that for you. Uh, Webster's Dictionary defines a paradox as a statement that is seemingly contradictory or opposed to common sense and yet is perhaps true. So with a paradox, what happens is you hear it, and at first you're like, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's just flat out wrong. That seems upside down. It seems backwards. It just doesn't seem right. And then what we find is this, is the more that you begin to kind of pontificate on that truth, think it over, meditate on it, the more you begin to find out that what seemed to be wrong is actually right. Let me give you kind of an example of this. Uh, One example would be to say that giving is receiving, right? Well, when you first hear that, you're like, no, you're confused. Giving is giving and receiving is receiving. Giving is not receiving. But then again, if you've ever given in those ways, if you've ever perhaps heard a testimony of somebody who's gone gone on a mission trip, they, they go and this is kind of how it sounds. They say, well, listen, we went, we spent our money, we spent our time, we spent our energies, we, we, we were exhausted by the time we get back. We did it all to be able to give and to be a blessing to the people who were there. But to be honest with you, we were the one who ultimately received the blessing. Do you get that? That's kind of how a, a paradox works. And what's interesting is the Bible is actually full of paradoxes. In fact, some theologians say that the Christian life itself is lived as a paradox. For example, the Bible will say, hey, listen, if, uh, if you want to receive, you have to give. If you want to be first, you have to be last. If you want to be the greatest, you have to be least. If, if, uh, if you want life, you have to learn to die. If you want to be free, you have to be enslaved. You guys with me on this whole paradox thing? Well, what James does this morning is he is going to introduce us to two other paradoxes that you're probably not nearly familiar with. And I got to admit, when you first begin to read this, it seems again wrong, seems to be even confusing, but as we begin to kind of work through it, I think this morning, I think we're going to actually see that what seems to be wrong is actually right. And I think that we're going to need to be completely and utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Because i got to tell you this, is that this is not the easiest passage to understand. It's not the easiest passage to interpret. And one of the ways, reasons I know this is because I have to interpret and preach it myself. Uh, by the way, if it's hard to understand, it's hard to preach. You guys get that, right? Just okay, so that you extend a little bit of grace. But in our one-on-one discipleship program that we have, anybody who wants to know how to study the Bible and learn theology and things like that, we use the book of James to help people through that, to be able to really learn how to rightly divide the word of truth. And, and what I find is people do really well until they get to these verses. Then they get to these verses and they're like, dude, I have no idea what in the world this is all about. I'm completely uh, confused. And one of the things that I tell them is, and this is a way to teach them, is say to understand this, again, we have to go back to those tools of scriptural interpretation. You've got to understand the context when understanding what he's saying in these verses. And what we mean by context is what is it that he's been saying all of this time? So let me remind you of what Paul, or excuse me, what James has been writing about. James has, in essence, been saying, hey, listen, uh, remember, he's writing to a group of, of suffering believers, people who have been scattered about. They've lost their homes. They've lost their freedoms, and now they're scattered about in, 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 throughout Asia Minor and all these other countries simply because they're following Jesus Christ, and they are facing some of the biggest, greatest, grandest trials you could ever imagine. And so what James has been trying to do in, in, in chapter 1 is he's been helping them to be able to navigate through this. 
He's showing them what it looks like for a believer to face difficulties and troubles in their life. And so he's given us a series of commands. The first command was this. He said, listen, you need to consider. Consider. When you face difficulties, you need to consider it all joy when you face these difficulties. Why? We learn because we know that God is going to ultimately use them to transform us into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ that we have to consider. We saw last week that the second thing we have to do is we have to ask. When we're in the midst of a trial and a difficulty and we don't know what to do, it's not a time to kind of like freestyle our way through the difficulty or to go to the world to find wisdom. What we need to do is go and find and seek divine wisdom of God to help us to do and to live out in faith in the midst of that trouble in which we're in. Now, he, now he's going to give us a third thing that we need to do when we're in the midst of trials. But before we get to this third command, let me ask you, how are you doing with the first two? Okay, that, that might seem like a crazy question, but I'm a preacher, and the biggest frustration that a preacher has is that people love to hear the Word of God, and we, we're great at listening to the Word of God, but we're not so great as applying to the Word of God. So let me just, as your pastor, let me ask you this. How are you doing with applying this in your life? Many of you, and I know this as your pastor, are going through trials and difficulties, but have you yet considered it all joy to be facing the difficulty in which you're in? Are you still hubbubbing about it, wondering why in the world you're going through what you're going through? Or have you sat there and said, man, I am going to face this with joy because I know God's going to use it to change me into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ? How many of you have asked? I don't mean ask me or somebody else. How many of you have literally sat there in the midst of what you're doing and said, time out, God, I sincerely need your help here and now to know what to do. I pray that you do. And I'm just going to assume, because this is how I'm, I'm able to sleep at night, I'm going to assume that all of you are doing what I preach about on Sunday morning, okay? Sound good? All right? We're just going to assume it's the only way I can continue to live, all right? And so today we're going to look at the third command. He told us, first of all, to consider, second, to ask, and now what he's going to do is the third one, kind of a surprising command here. He's going to command all of us to boast, to boast, okay, very strange. Now, what we want to do is we want to look at this. We want to look at both of these paradoxes, and then we're going to see how it is that we are being commanded to boast. So let's look at the first paradox. Paradox number one, here it is, the poor who are rich, the poor who are rich, you got that? That's a paradox, all right? Poor, rich, it just doesn't seem to match up. Now, notice what he says in verse 9. He says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Now, it's always important that we understand who it is that James is talking to, who, we, who he's addressing. And so, so far, we know that it's a group of displaced believers, Jewish believers from Jerusalem. But he's going to give more specifics right here of who he's directly talking to when he says, lowly brother. The word brother lets us know that he's, again, talking to true, born-again, blood-washed Christians, believers in Christ. The word lowly is letting us know that he's talking to those who are impoverished. He's, talking the word, he's using the word lowly to describe their economic status. These are poor people. So understand, now, when James writes this letter, the majority of the people that he's writing to are really, really poor I mean, they don't have two pennies to rub together, two nickels to rub together. Most of them didn't have much to begin with when they were in Jerusalem, but what little they had, they have now lost because they've had to flee and leave it all behind to escape the coming persecution, the religious persecution. And so what he's doing is he says that they are lowly, they are poor economically. But I think the word lowly describes more than that. 
I think it's not only a demonstration of where they are economically, but I think it's also a demonstration of where they are socially. During that day, and even today, whether we want to admit it to not, people don't think a whole lot of those who are poor. In fact, people don't think of the poor a whole lot to begin with. Now, God's people should, but the world in which we live doesn't so much. In fact, if people were really honest in the world, they would, they would say that they look at those who are impoverished as really not being very important people in the world in which we live. And so that's where they are socially, but just imagine for a moment emotionally kind of where they are. It only takes so long for people to tell you that you're worth nothing before you start to believe it. Got it? So here they are, they're impoverished, they don't have much money, the whole society thinks that they are nothing, and now they are beginning to believe that they are nothing because of where they are and because of what they have or because of what they don't have. Now they're believing it. These are the people that, that, that James is addressing. Now listen to the command that he gives to these lowly people. He says to them, he requires them to boast now, I think we know what boasting is, but, but to define it, it means to speak of one's deeds, abilities, or character in a manner of pride. Y'all know what boasting is? How many of y'all hate boasting? How many, it drives me crazy. This is a pet peeve when people get up and talk about how great they are. You know, I mean, just, you know, it's like I could be watching a football game and I could be, I could watch somebody who's doing something on a field that is just making everybody else look foolish, right? I mean, they're running circles around them. They're missing. They're doing all, and I love to watch it. And I begin to cheer for the guy and I go, man, that guy is awesome. But the moment that guy goes into the post-game interview and begins with that stupid finger waving it saying he's number one and he's really that good and nobody can touch him and he's the greatest in the world. For me, he goes from hero to zero just like this, Right? And the next game, I begin to cheer against him. Tackle him. Kill him. Oh, he had a bad game. Yes. Right? It's the same thing with people who are exceptionally good looking. Right? For you Zoolander fans. Right? Those people who are really just, they're stunning. Guys, don't act like you don't know what we're talking about. You see him and you're like, whoa. You know, like the guy that plays like Captain America. Look, I'm a dude and I love my wife and I'm all dude. I hunt. All right? All right? Okay, so I'm all dude, but that dude is ridiculously good looking. I mean, I looked, I'm like, oh, that's, that's just wrong. Honey, you can even say he's really that good looking, right? But here's the problem. The moment that they sit there and go, don't hate me because I'm good looking. I'm like, I hate you. I, I don't hate you because you're good looking. I hate you because you're an idiot. All right, that's why I hate you, right? And so, so what happens is it seems very strange that here are a group of people who are the bottom of the dredges of society that nobody really likes or cares for, and he's given the advice, hey, go out and boast. But what we find out in the Word of God is that there are actually some times that it is good and it is right for us to boast in the right thing. Paul identifies this. When Paul comes on the scene, he says, But far it be for me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he's saying. I can't boast in anything about myself, anything I am or anything that I've done, because truthfully, there's nothing to boast about. I'm a sinner saved by grace. But he says, let me tell you what I will boast in. I will boast in the completed work of Jesus Christ. I will boast, here it is, in the gospel. He goes, though I was a sinner, God demonstrated his love towards me, that while I was still a sinner, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, stepped down out of heaven, took on human flesh, became the God-man, was born of a virgin, was born without a sin 
nature, lived a perfect life, required all of the law, died on a cross, had the wrath of God that was meant towards me pour out on him, and it was satisfied. How do I know? Because on the third day he rose from the grave. I will boast in that. Do you see that? That's what we need to boast in. And some of you, you act like that's not even good news. What is wrong with you, right? Right? I mean, come on. Is that not good news? Is that not something we ought to be boasting in? It is. And so, so James is saying something very similar. It's just kind of just a little tweak. So what he says, he says, listen, the lowly brother, let him boast in his exaltation. Some translations, and I, I think it's good to understand, he says, in his high position, there's the paradox. Lowly brother, boast in your high position. Now, wait a minute. Are you low or are you high? So what is he ultimately saying? I think in a nutshell, he's just simply saying this. He's saying, Paul says, I am going to boast in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Paul says we ought to boast, all right, in what? In the benefits that we receive from the completed work of Jesus Christ. That's what we need to be doing. Boast in your benefits. Boast what you ultimately have. Let me, let me break it down for you just a little bit more. From the world's perspective, in the first century, the poor, the homeless Christian, the believer, the follower of Jesus Christ, was viewed as the lowest of the low. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 4.13. Speaking of the impoverished Christians, he said to them, he goes, you are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Because the world views you as garbage, the scum of the earth. That's very pleasant, isn't it? I mean, it really encourages you, right? And so what he's saying here is, he says, but listen, this, look, and it's true because, let's face it, nobody envies the poor. Nobody is aspiring to be poor. Nobody is, that I know, uh, aspiring, at least purposely, to be like poor people. I mean, all of us would be appalled if we were walking down the street with our son or daughter and go, Dad, you know how you asked me what I really want to be? What I really want to be is see that man over there with nothing, and he stinks, and he's over, and he's sleeping on the ground. That's what I aspire to be. None of us, in turn, will turn to our child and go, oh, honey, you don't know how much joy this brings our heart. This is what we've been hoping and praying and pouring into you, that you would become a homeless, homeless uh, person. So there's something, there's a stigma with poverty, at least within the world of this lowly of lows. And, and, and what he's saying here, he says, hey, listen, and for the first century, the believer, it made it even that much worse. But God, he's saying, he says, God sees the poor differently than what the world sees it. And I think that's the whole point. God doesn't see them as low. God sees those who are impoverished and are hurting but love Jesus at the highest possible position, at the highest possible level. I think what he's saying in, in the simplest terms is this. Instead of wallowing in the abyss of your temporal poverty, difficulties, and in what it is that you lack, he says you ought to rejoice in the height of your eternal reality. He says, you are not defined by what the world says about you, but what God says about you. And how does God define you as a believer in Jesus Christ? Well, in Romans 8, 8 verse 17, he says that we are co-heirs with the Son of God, with Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 9, he says that we are God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. He says, this is who you truly are. This is the reality of who you are and all that you have. 
And he says, and what I want you to do is I want you to boast in it. That means I want you to talk about it. I want you to speak about it. I want you to take pride in who it is, that you, who you are in, that you are in the person of Jesus Christ. This is what I want you to do. I want you to discipline yourself to do this. But what's interesting is, and he says not only to do it, to boast, but to do it joyfully. Allow it to impact your heart in such a way that when you speak, even in the midst of your difficulties, you are boasting about the glorious rewards and things that you now have in Jesus Christ. Now, that's all very nice and theological. But the question is, is how many of us have really done this? How many of you, in recognizing what it is that you lack actually thought to sit down and go, you know what I'm going to do to counteract my negativity of all that's going on? What I really need to do is begin to think of all that I have in Jesus Christ. The truth is, many of us have probably done that. Why is that? Because of our fleshly nature, what we tend to do is love to focus on the negative. Uh, Isn't that true? Uh, we spend so, I think one of the biggest reasons why God's people are not more joyful is because we spend far more time focusing on what we don't have than all that it is that we have, right? That's why, for, as a pastor, I have, and I know this is hard to believe, I have heard my share of complaints as a pastor in a Southern Baptist church. I have. I, I know that's surprising to you. But let me tell you why there is almost a physical reaction like this, when somebody comes and complains, I'm just being honest. It is partially because, yes, it's an irritant. But the other part is you're sitting there going, brother, do you not know the riches of all we have and all you can do is sit and complain about that one thing? Do you, have you lost sight of all we have in Jesus Christ? And the answer to that is yes. Now, some of us haven't done this and some of you are sitting there going, wow, this is, Great wisdom. This is a command of what we ought to be doing. Some of you haven't done it just because you didn't know. Well, guess what? Now you know, right? But let me tell you what I think when I read through this. I think what a troubling factor is for me. I think the troubling factor is what happens when you know this, when you know that when you are in the midst of that struggle and difficulty and you don't have what you feel like you need in the midst of it to navigate through and be faithful through the trial that you're going through, And he says that you need to boast and think upon the things that God has given you and all that you have in Jesus Christ. But here's the deal. You begin to think on it, but it still doesn't bring your heart comfort. When you begin to think and you begin to say, okay, well, I'm a child of God and I'm a co-heir with Jesus, but really that's not doing anything for me. I appreciate the honesty of your heart, but how troubling that is of a heart. Because what it truly means is, is that we're still so, so living still by faith and so living for the temporal. Our hearts are, and our minds are still thinking that the things of this world are far more flashy and shiny than the things of God and Jesus Christ himself. What do you do when you get there? What do you do for the person who's sitting in the congregation and sits there and says, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying is when I'm in the midst of the trouble and the struggle that I'm in right now, that what I need to begin to do is realize, not not think on how poor I am, but how rich I am in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what I need to be able to do. And I am, and I, and I, and I want to, and I, and I think about those things, but still, it's, it's not as though my heart is gravitating and being overwhelmed towards the things of God. What do I do? Cry out for mercy. Cry out for mercy. 
Cry out to him for his grace and for his mercy and say, God, I know, I know by faith the word of God. I know that you're more glorious than all of this. But God, I need to see it. Would you open my eyes? Would you open my eyes to see that just like Paul says in his prayer in Romans 8.18, would you allow my heart and do such a work inside of my heart that I would be able to say, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God, would you do a work in my heart? That's what I think that we do. See, because we're responding in faith. We know that it's right. Who we are inside want to be able to rejoice in that, but our flesh gets in the way, and the way to call out in faith is get, God, change me. Allow me to see who you are. Allow me to see your infinite worth. I think he's saying something a little bit more than just to be able to boast in their height. I think he's even saying that we can enjoy and appreciate even the lowliness and the trouble in which we're in. That's what I, that's what I think he's, he's also adding to this. Um, I, I think what he's saying is this. I, I think James is saying more than just, hey, if, if you get your mind off of these difficulties, you can forget about the difficulties. Instead, what I think he's saying is, hey, listen, you can get your mind on the things of Christ, and eventually you can even thank God for the difficulties because of what and how he's used it in your life. See, I think what James means all the more is, in, again, not only not wallowing in those things, but what he's going to say is you guys need to recognize when you are impoverished, no matter what kind of poverty it is, that you are at a spiritual advantage to those who have. There's a spiritual advantage that the poor have over those who have. We're going to see it in just a minute. You say, well, how can that be? Well, first of all, let's verify that this is a clear teaching of Scripture, and it's not something that I'm taking out of context. Listen what Jesus says. When Jesus comes on the scene in Luke chapter 4 and verse 18, he quotes first words out of his mouth in the book of Luke, Isaiah 61, 1. He says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the what? To the poor. Then Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says this, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. It's not poverty that makes somebody a child of God, but it does provide an advantage to the person to become one and to draw closer to him. The lack, when we lack, it drives us to him. Poverty produces, listen, a lowliness and humility of spirit that remains open to the things of God. In other words, the physically impoverished person, when you lack something and you can't do anything about it, you understand what it means to need something. You can't do it. I can't do anything about it. I, I, no matter how hard I work, I can't provide my needs, the poor person says. So what they begin to do is when somebody comes and says, well, you also have a spiritual need, it's easy for them to move from the material over to the spiritual. And they begin to say, hey, listen, I saw my need here. I can easily see my spiritual need here. And I can see that there's nothing I can do to meet my spiritual need and the forgiveness of my sin. I have to be fully and completely dependent upon the person of Jesus Christ. So here's what he says. He says, man, are you struggling? Are you getting into this? You need to boast. I know that you look like you don't have what you need. You look impoverished, whether it be financially or emotionally or, or mentally or whatever it is. But I'm telling you right now, instead of thinking on what you don't have, think on all the glorious things that you do have. And when you do, you'll be thankful for what you don't have because it literally worked in your favor to drive you to Jesus Christ. You guys got that? That's the first. Here's the second. Second paradox, we don't have much time. Listen quicker, if you will, all right? Second paradox, first paradox, the poor who are rich. So I know some of you are like, oh, we're almost done? Wow, 
Time flies when you preach, Brother Mike. Anyway, just joking. So first paradox, the poor who are rich. The second paradox, here it is, the rich who are poor. And notice what he says here. He says, and the rich in his humiliation. And the rich in his humiliation. Now, I got to tell you that this is where the passage becomes difficult. It's difficult because we don't really, he doesn't as clearly define who it is that he's specifically speaking to. Do you remember when he talks to the poor, the lowly brother? We know that he is talking to the poor Christians. Did you notice here he lacks brother? He lacks brother here, so he talks about the rich, but we don't know if he's specifically talking to rich believers or rich unbelievers. And let me tell you, it's very hard to really be able to determine just by the linguistics of the text and in the context, it's hard to really be able to tell. In fact, most theologians, even very good theologians and commentators, are really 50-50 with this. Some believe that he's speaking to unbelievers. Others believe he's speaking to believers. So what is the answer to that? I'm not really sure. I don't know if we can be definitively sure of whether he's addressing rich believers or rich not. But let me tell you this, you have to make a choice. If you don't make a choice, then you're going to be all over the place in your understanding of the text, in your interpretation. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about this, but what I think he's doing is, I think he's actually talking to the rich who at least claim to be believers in Jesus Christ. This letter is going to be passed around through the churches of Asia Minor and northern Palestine, and so I imagine that somehow these these rich are going to be hearing what it is of the instructions. And so therefore, I believe they're going to hear the word probably be in the church and at least identify themselves as believers in Jesus Christ. So, so with that said, uh, let, let's move on. He, he states that they too, here's the command, paradoxical command, you too are supposed to boast, but not in your exaltation, but in your humiliation. Now, do you see the paradox? Rich, humble, those two things don't really go together, Right? When we think of the rich, we think of those who are overprivileged. Do you know what I mean by that? Overprivileged. There's nothing that they need, and there's nothing that they want. They've got everything that they need. They've got everything that they want. By the way, if you're trying to figure out if you're in the poor camp or the rich camp, this probably relates more to you and me, all right? And so if you're trying to sit there and go, well, I can go to sleep because this really means nothing to me. According to James, we would fit into the rich camp just so that we understand And so again, we see, uh, and so when he brings up this idea of humiliation, I think what James is teaching is he's teaching the fact that in fact the rich are underprivileged when it comes to spiritual things, not overprivileged as they are in the material worth. What he's saying is, hey, your riches that you think, you're in the midst of difficulties, you're in the midst of hardships, and the things that you think are going to help you in the midst of this, your riches that you want to place your faith in, that's not really an advantage for you. You're actually as a disadvantage for having stuff rather than not having stuff. Do you guys get that? And so what he says here is this, we, again, we know that this is a truth in the word of God. Mark 10, 17. Do you remember this going through the book of Mark? You remember everything I preached in Mark, right? Okay, all right, good. Mark chapter 10 and verse 17. Remember the story of the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, oh, good teacher, how may I have eternal life? What must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus turns to him and he says, you know the law? And he begins to quote the law. He says, these things you must do. He says, all these things I have done since I was a little boy. And he says, you have. Indeed, you've done all these things. One thing you have not done, sell everything you have. He says, and follow me. And so this is what the scriptures follow up with there in Mark 10, 22. It says, disheartened by the saying, you went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. 
Jesus at that point turns to his disciples and he says to them, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Look, when you read the word of God, please understand this. It almost sounds like God hates rich people, right? Which means that God hates you and I. And he loves and he adores all of the poor people. It's not what the Bible is trying to teach. What the Bible is trying to teach is that there is a spiritual disadvantage for the rich and a spiritual advantage for those who have nothing, who are lacking in nothing. And so this is what we see. It's not that he hates one or hates the other. One, you said, why then does the rich, now think about what we just learned for the poor. Why are they, if they're an advantage, why their disadvantage? It's because simply this, one of the primary requirements for a person to be born again is for them to come to a place of absolute helpless dependence upon Jesus. He just holds up a little child and says, this child is like the kingdom of God. You have to be like them. You can't do anything to earn their salvation. They're completely and fully dependent upon other people. They can do nothing at all. Now, think about the rich just for a moment. For the poor, they know what it means to need. For the rich, they have no idea. They have no idea what it means to need something and not be able to bail themselves out of whatever difficulty it is that they are in. And so what he's saying to them right now, he says, your problem is you think that you're in a good position, but actually you're in a bad position. What you've done is you've let your wealth blind you to what your ultimate need is going to be. This is what Jesus says to the church at Laodicea. Church at Laodicea, he says this in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. He says, for you say that I am rich, I have prospered, and need nothing. He says, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He goes, your material wealth had blinded you to your spiritual need. So what is it that he means when he says to boast in your, your humiliation? Remember when he says to the poor that you need to boast in your exaltation? He's saying you, you literally need to discipline your mind, poor people, when you don't have, to instead of falling down into that abyss, to begin to think on the great things of Christ and all that you have in him. And when you do, you'll experience the joy of God in the midst of that. Now he's saying the same thing. Hey, rich person, when difficulties begin to happen, instead of you looking around and thinking everything is going to be okay because of your wisdom, you need to work hard to look into yourself and see that what you have does not define you. You may look rich outwardly, but really spiritually you are impoverished and you are just as much of need as Christ is the poor man. Why? And then he goes on and he tells the rest of the text, he tells it because they're in poverty. Because he says, he says to him, he says, um, he says, he says, like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's saying this, he goes, there's just some things that money cannot help you with. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. You can't put your faith in your riches. Now let me, let me say something real quick. Because I, as I've been trying to bring out the application in that, I, do, I think specifically he's talking about the riches, yes, of finances, but I don't think it would be harm to the text to say the riches in all the other areas of our life. You know, some people are really rich in family. Some people are really rich in the relationship with their spouse. Some people are rich by the friends who ultimately are around them. 
Some people are rich because of their children and the way that their children are pursuing God. And so they're rich in us. So let, let's see if this is consistent with Scripture. God sits there and says, let the rich man, whatever it is that you're rich in, when those difficulties come your way, don't think that because these things are good that you have all you need, your family, your husband, your friends, to be able to get through the difficulty in which you're going through. Don't put your faith in those things in your riches. Put your faith in me and me alone. In me and me alone. And all I know to tell you is this has got to be a spiritual discipline for us. Because for us, we're so vulnerable to it. Because we're so filthy rich in so many different ways. And it's easy for us just not even to bat an eye. What I love about missionaries is that they sell everything they have and they go to the field. And you're like, hey, dude, we have to depend on God. We have no other choice. And there's something about that that you're like, wow, that is awesome. Right? But what do you do if you don't go there? What if you still live in America? I think what we do is we begin to live this way and discipline our minds and discipline our hearts and sit there and say, I can't put my trust in any of this. God, only you and you alone I can trust. I, let, me, let me close with this illustration. Um, some of you may never have heard my testimony, so let me just share my testimony with you very quick. Um, I was born a believer in Jesus Christ. I'm joking. All right, I'm just joking. I've heard so many of those uh, that uh, I've never not believed in Jesus. So uh, anyway, um, there was a time that God actually regenerated me and saved me, all right, by his grace and by his mercy. Um, some of you kind of know, I kind of grew up in maybe kind of like a background, kind of like you did a little bit, where um, both parents drank, both alcoholics, a lot of violence within the home, a lot of screaming within the home, um, hate that whole screaming thing. And uh, and so we would, we'd be dragged out of bed, you know, pulled out of bed at all corners of the night because of fights, because of my parents. Well, one, one time, my, my mom just had enough. She left my dad. Now, the grace of God, my dad ended up coming to faith in Jesus Christ, like literally before she ever left. He was up in Connecticut. He ends up coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He hears the gospel. God saves him. He comes down. He comes back to tell her, hey, God's changed me. She goes, I've heard this too much. I'm out of here. So she leaves, okay? Now, understand uh, that's what lost people do, okay? So no judgment. I don't have mommy problems, all right? Any, any of that type of thing. And so she goes, she skedaddles, and so she leaves me and my, my half-brother and my half-sister and my dad. And so here we are. And so <clears throat> as a little kid, um, I, was, I was a little insightful, okay? I, I was kind of the weird kid that talked better to adults than to whatever, and I wasn't even homeschooled, which is crazy, okay? And so I was kind of, kind of, always kind of knew kind of what was going on, even though I was the, the youngest in the family. And so, um, so some of you are like offended. I, I homeschool, so I can mock myself, okay? So um, anyway, and so you just can't mock me. So I'm just joking. Feel free. Uh, you do anyway. So, um, so, so anyway, and so as we're trying to kind of navigate through this and work through this, um, I began to kind of pull away from my dad and my brother and my sister. And uh, truthfully, I think what was happening, and I think God just gave my dad a lot of wisdom, he began to share the gospel and began to share the good news of Jesus Christ, but it didn't seem really something that was infinitely glorious to me. And uh, he just began to share, and, and there was his heart. And so what God does is, is at that moment, uh, he talks, he, he begins, I believe, to work in my dad's heart, and then my dad comes to me and he says, hey, he goes, you know, you just haven't been yourself the last couple months. What's going on? Of course, I didn't want to say anything, and I just kind of said a bunch of gibberish, not really saying what it is. And he goes, let me tell you what I think is going on. He goes, I think that what's going on is that you're afraid. He goes, your mom's just left you. And I said, that's right. My mom's left me. 
And, and see, what, what really played into me, just so that you understand that your words impact people, people would say things like this as though it wouldn't impact me. Well, we can understand a father leaving their kids, but how can a mother ever leave their children? And that was just blows to my heart as a little kid. What could I have done? And what, how bad must we have been? And how little must my mom have loved me in order for this to ultimately have happened? Man, it just, it just weighed on me. My dad said, I know that you're afraid because if your mom could love you, you're probably afraid that I could leave you and your brother and sister could leave you as well. He goes, son, he goes, you need to understand something. He goes, people, all people, even your dad and your mom and everything else, are not fully dependable. Nobody is. And he goes, so you cannot put all of your faith in your mom, in me, and your brother or your sister. And this is how we transition into the gospel. Because there's only one that is worthy of all your trust. There's only one that is worthy of all your hope. And you know, I gotta tell you, that sparked my interest in this God in this gospel. Yes, he further, I didn't go and say, oh, I want somebody that's never gonna let me down. But the way he showed me that Christ would never let me down was the extent in which Christ was willing to go for me to the cross and back and resurrect for me. And that gravitated to my heart. And I've got to tell you, and as a pastor going through and living and, and working and finding myself in so many difficulties, just like you do in your job, no, no different, so many times how that truth has just come back once again. Can't put my faith in people. Can only put my faith in God. I'm bankrupt. Everything else might look good, but really what I need can only come from him. You know, I wonder this morning if some of you are poor this morning. And if you are, let me encourage you to boast. Don't let what you don't have define you. Boast in what you have as a child of God. And let that nourish you so much that you can even look back at your weakness. Remember what Paul says? Here's the paradox again. When I am weak, I am therefore strong. So therefore, God, thank you for the weakness. Some of you might be rich today. Then boast. Not in your riches, but don't let your riches define you. Don't let you think because materially or anything else, you're rich in anything else, that that means that your relationship with God is okay. And certainly don't think, think the things that you are rich in are going to help you when it comes to spiritual things and in the midst of trials. Only God can do that. So if you're going to boast, boast in your humility. The Bible says, if we will humble ourselves, God will lift us up. Same need, two different groups of people. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning. We thank you. We honor you. We glorify and magnify your name. God, this morning, we just need to see you. We need to see your grace. We need to experience your mercy. Would you open up our eyes? Would you open up our hearts to see glorious things from the word that has been preached today? that we'll see you and we'll choose you every time. Lord, we love you. Lord, we thank you. Now, there are some here who are not saved. May they be born again today, right here, right now. May they repent, turn from their sin, place their faith completed in Jesus Christ. If there's anybody here that wants to know more about how they can come to faith in Jesus and want to know about that, I want to be down here. love to talk to you about that. Maybe there are just some of you who just sit there and go, I'm poor, but I can rejoice.